What if every day you had the chance to experience more love and intimacy in your life? We're going to be sharing stories of struggles and triumphs in love, sex, and relationships, along with expert advice to create more conscious connections. Enjoy this podcast with Dawn Richard. Wake up to real love. Hi, everyone. This is Dawn Richard, also known as The Awakening with Dawn. And this is the Wake Up to Real Love podcast, where we share stories of struggles and triumphs in love, sex, and relationships, along with expert advice to create more conscious connections. I have an amazing guest today. I'm so excited to welcome Dan McKenzie. Hi, Dan. Hi there. What a sweet introduction. <laughs> um, he is a man of many t- gifts and talents, and uh, we're going to talk about your evolution because you're like a renaissance guy, in my, in my opinion. Uh, Dan is an Emmy-nominated songwriter and music producer who's also spent three decades in spiritual tra- self-transformation work. For the past decade, he's worked as a writer, speaker, podcast host, and personal counselor in that space. He hosts an online program and a podcast, both called Omega Male and also hosts the podcast beyond and above. His work is deeply rooted in anthroposophy, which I can barely pronounce, (laughs) and nonviolent communication. Welcome, Dan. Thank you. It's great to be here. (laughs) Uh, Okay. I I have so many questions for you, but the first question that I want to ask you is how is your sweet little two-year-old changed your life? Well, we could spend an hour talking about just that. Um, I know. Um, you know, I think people, what the things I heard from most people before having a kid are, it was just the one universal that everyone said was, you have no idea. You just don't know the scope of the change. It's like such a game changer. I can't even put a word on it. And so the answer is kind of that there's no real way to qualify it other than it's been an expansion of love in my heart. Um, and not just for this being, but through my love for this being for the world. I actually feel more invested in loving the world and loving humanity than not to sound like a Pollyanna, but genuinely through my experience of this love for this child, it's like it has expanded my heart. And uh, that's probably the biggest thing. And there's also a lot more, you know, fear about things that I never was particularly apprehensive about, but those are, those things still are small compared to the, the experience of love shifting into a in a in a micro and a macrocosmic way Mm -hmm. do you see the world through his eyes i think sometimes i try to i think that's part of being a parent and for me trying to do better than my parents uh, you know because not to throw them under the bus in the first minute of the interview but just to say that i think any parent can and should and does endeavor to do better on some level. And that is to really, um, to not look at him as this other, but to, uh, to try to see the world through his eyes and to understand, you know, what's he experiencing? What is he, what's the limit of his experience? I know what he's, you know, just not from just being a two-year-old, but being like under COVID, for example, like he would have had more social interaction. Right. So I'm aware of the fact that he's only seen a it's only interacted with a certain number of people in the first two years of his life. And so I understand that when a new person comes into the space for him, it's a completely different situation. I've met millions of people and this is a two year old. And so, uh, so there are moments where I think I try to, to experience the world from his point of view, um, in a more poetic way. Uh, I think part of what I was talking about earlier is that it's, it's awakened an aspect of innocence within me that is what a child experiences on some level, you know, the newness of the world. Yeah. I was going to say that everything's new to him. Right. So when I am sorry for the noise, when I am experiencing through his eyes or through his experience, I'm experiencing the newness of the world, you know, and the excitement of it. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, there's a layer of maybe jadedness that gets stripped away. You can say I I think the beauty of kids is they're so in the present moment. They're reminders of just to be here now. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a little bit like they're stoned. You know, know, like 
I mean, I, I'm I'm a totally uh, sober person at this point, but there there's been enough uh, experience of substances in my life to to know what that experience is like, and you know, just being it's. I think that's what, partly what attracts uh, adults to to pot in a way. It gives you this childlike experience of being fascinated with whatever's in front of you, whether it's a spoon or a TV show. Um, and yeah, not to why, father. Why, why can't we do that sober? Exactly. Well, and it, well, the problem, we don't want to need to get to this. This might be one of our topics of exploration, but, um, part of the reason I don't do any of those substances anymore is that I think that the, the feeling of the experience doesn't always represent the reality of the experience. When you're a child, it is exciting and everything is new. There's no extra thing putting it on you when it's being stimulated by a change in your brain chemistry. You know, it's for, I mean, I had this experience as a songwriter a lot. I'd be, you know, on cannabis and writing something that seemed to be the most amazing song I had ever written, you know? And then the next day I'd listen to it sober and go, Hmm, well, maybe that wasn't as, I call it better. You know, <laughs> the feeling is very seductive. That's a, just a beautiful feeling to, to be in wonderment about like, a piece of music or a person you're having a conversation with. But I, I, I now more than ever feel like if we just like do a little effort, we can actually get to the place where yeah. the person is that fascinating without you being stoned and the music is that good. And, and then the impressions are more reliable, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. I, so I end up children because they get there without any work, you know, we yeah. have to work, we have to sort of work through our jaded cynicism Stop. Yeah, stuff, whatever we've accumulated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think that that because, you know, as adults, we have so many other responsibilities and in the, you know, like the busyness of life, we forget to just be, you know, we're too busy doing as opposed to being human beings as opposed to human doings. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. I look, I sort of look forward to what's hopefully the second half of my life. I would like more of that. I mean, I mean, I'm truly inspired to be productive and I have so many projects that I'm doing and inspirations, but in a way, if you don't have some element of just the beingness, like what is all, what is all the other stuff worth? You worth. Know? Yeah. And what does it mean? What's it mean? And also how good is it going to be? Like, I think we, life is something that has to keep being re-experienced. You can't just like experience life when you're a child and then work the rest of your life, you know, <laughs> That's I mean, funny. I think the people, those people who seem ageless that I always admire and I have friends and loved ones of all ages. Uh, and my, my most important living mentor is my great uncle who's uh, 99 years old. Wow. That's a spark in his eye. And he's still giving talks and like he was, he's a, a powerhouse of a, of a, a psychology professor, both at Columbia and Yale. But, um, this man partly, I think, has so much still to give to life and so much that twinkle in his eye yeah. uh, because he is constantly uh, re-experiencing life anew and not just one of those people that stopped growing at some age. Like a lot of people, you can sort of, you can almost pinpoint a time just by the way they dress or the music they listen to or their, what their <laughs> opinions are. Stuck the in the they, 70s. <laughs> I mean, look, we all have a little bit of a generational uh, identification, but people really just like at some point, like, this is who I am. These are my ideas. This is my opinions. This is my political point of view. And then you're just this weird automaton. Whereas those people, I think that are, that are the most fascinating Those people we look at, they're like, they, they're like 90, but they seem like children or they're, yeah. you know, 80 or sexy and vibrant. And it's like, if there's something about that, what you're talking about, like endeavoring, cultivating the habit, whether it's a practice some people are probably naturally more gifted with the disposition and some people work toward it, but that ability to just um, be in the present and to savor, savor it, you know? And that's, I think that's the, that's the uh, elixir of life. That's the uh, fountain of youth. Yeah. It's the, it's the take time to smell the roses. Take time to smell the roses, you know, when you're on a walk. I mean, I do literally every time I go for a walk, I pass something and I stop and breathe it in just to be and have that experience. Yeah. 100%. I literally smell the roses. We have some roses in our yard 
uh, whenever I'm anywhere and I see a rose, I sort of consider myself a little bit of an aficionado, right? Like I know like, oh, here, that's one of those little white ones with a little pink around the inside. That's going to have this kind of particular sweetness. Uh-huh. Right? Oh, that's one of those red ones. It probably looks really hot, but it's not really, there's not a lot, you know, like I, but I don't know. And if I can just get a little bit and the roses, I mean, my favorite, maybe there's honeysuckle, jasmine, all of these things are magical, but like a rose that's really, there's something extra special about that. And I think that's maybe where that, why that ex, uh, expression is a cliche, but I think there's something, if you're open to it, I mean, this is what I, what we're talking about too. Like two different people can have the same experience in life and one can be totally unmoved by it. And another can be totally transformed by it. Yeah. You know? So one person might sit there and smell a rose and be like, Oh yeah. Well, it's, nah, so it's okay. Perfume. And somebody else might just have their entire aura cleansed and have be filled with hope and love for the universe. Do you oh, know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I think that that is uh, a capacity that can be um, developed. And so that's, it's a spiritual practice to me to smell a flower and to take in whatever it's, and I'm not like so uh, foofy about it. Like, Oh, you know, the plant is giving me a special message, but like, there is something that's being transferred into me. That's filling me up. That's cleansing me. That's raising my spirits or just making me happy. Mm-hmm. And I think the more you acknowledge it and you're present for it, the more you build the capacity to really experiencing it. Right. So I think intuitions like that too. Like if you, if something happens where you had an intuition about something and then it happens or you had, you know, and you just acknowledge it. Oh, that was an intuitive moment. It's sort of, opens your intuition more. Whereas if you're right. very cynical and you're like, Oh, that was just a coincidence. Oh yeah. You never actually developed the capacity. And so in a way your cynicism is self-reinforcing because if you don't develop the capacity and you don't acknowledge it when it happens, you don't have the experiences. And so you don't have the experiences that confirm the truth of it, you know? Right. So I think a lot of, this is a big, this is, I think parts of we're already into like sort of subtle aspects of spiritual self-development and, uh, you know, there's so many things that are sort of connected to that. It's like homeopathy is so highly questioned in the medical community. Everyone thinks I've like, been studying it for 25 years. Right. And I didn't even know that. Right. Like, yeah. And I know, like, I was meant to say that, like, we, we actually have an intention to speak in, in a way here that is connected to something bigger. And so yeah. things like this don't surprise me, but it's worth yeah. acknowledging, right? Like, oh, I didn't know you were connected to homeopathy at all. But like, I just, it popped into my head as a good example for, you know, this is something that there's an entire class of people and friends of mine included, like friends of mine who are doctors who just say like, you know, there's no evidence to support that that's in any way effective. It's just all snake oil. And it's like, you know, there's like a long tradition here. uh, And there are countries like Germany that we respect who have better healthcare where that's actually considered a viable path of health. So you can be as cynical as you want to, but a more sophisticated, and currently more successful, stable Western democracy is totally acknowledged homeopathy in a way. So like, do you know that, do you know that it was um, taught in the medical schools before the big pharma came into existence? That doesn't surprise me at all. I didn't know that. Uh, And you were, when you were, uh, uh, you know, uh, trying to manage the unwieldy term of anthroposophy before I should point (laughs) out. And that's really one that people have to Google because it's just too much to explain. But it's all it's rooted originally in the work of Rudolf Steiner, uh, who broke from the Theosophical Society in the 1800s and formed the Anthroposophical Society. But he had so many initiatives that have become sort of worldwide things. The Waldorf School System is mm-hmm. totally that came out of anthroposophy, biodynamic agriculture. Um, but also a lot of uh, homeopathic medicine as we know it. He didn't invent it, but like sort of took it to another level. Mm-hmm. Um, all the Waleda products uh, come out of uh, the anthroposophical uh, movement. So there's all the what products? The, you know, when the, the brand Waleda, W-E-L-E-D-A, it's sort of a core. Yeah. And there's certain other products that are that are sort of well branded in the um, homeopathic oh. uh, space that come mm-hmm. that are directly related to anthroposophy and Steiner's work. So it is. So it's not a total uh, accident that I would bring it up, but. Just all this to say that um, when, and I'm a, look, I'm a total believer in science. I know we're just jumping around now, but when you make science, as many people do now, kind of a religion, 
mm-hmm. where um, it's a really bad religion if it's your religion because science itself is inherently ever-changing. And there are scientific developments today which may contradict something that was you know, right. widely held to be true five years ago. So right. it's, I think, a healthy disposition to look at the world in a way that we're constantly taking in new information and building upon the reserve of knowledge that we have. But, but to get too um, stagnant or ossified in a particular belief about a particular thing because it hasn't been tested yet, right, is a really dangerous uh, mindset. And to me, it's just like religious fanaticism. It's this right. absolutism. And, and, and some dear friends of mine will say, like, you know, homeopathy is just bullshit. You know, no one's ever proven that it's real. It's like, but I know people that have healed from it in various ways. And I know people who, you know, there's a reason that people pay money to good homeopaths. Right. Work, you know, it's not like, it's not, we're not just a bunch of idiots who, who are too stupid, like heathens that don't believe in science. It's just, they might be open to a, an approach that for whatever reason you're not open to. And then, you know, so anyway, we could go on about homeopathy, but it's just a good example for what we're talking about. Well, I, I think it, I think it segues into why are some people more open and some people aren't? I mean, this is, this is my own question of how people operate in the world and it's applicable to so many different aspects of life. You know, it's, it's applicable to your relationships. It's applicable to your work. It's applicable to how you view the world. So that, so that spark that you were talking about, about your um, great uncle, I mean, this is, this my grandmother my grandmother two of my grandmothers had this my dad and my mom have this sort of sense of always being curious and always exploring and always you know growing and evolving as opposed to staying stuck in whatever era they're in so what do you think is the difference between the people who are more open uh that's a really good question i i you know, as in all matters, it's sort of, it, it, it leads to the, the broader question, what makes a human being any particular way? Right. And so um, we are in our operational selves, right? The self that navigates through the world, the ego, whatever you want to call it, our identities are influenced by, um, you know, everyone will agree a childhood, you know, childhood situation, the family you were brought up in trauma, um, your socioeconomic background, the part of the world you grew up in, the religion or not lack of religion you were raised in, whether or not your parents were abusive or loving, like all of that sort of biographical stuff obviously, uh, feeds into it. Um, you could say if you're getting more esoteric that somehow your astrological imprint has something to do with whether you're more open or more closed. Like there's mm-hmm. certain people that are like astrologically predisposed. I'm a double Aquarius. So the fact that I'm like open to new ideas is to an astrologer, not a surprise. Now, I don't think I'm purely a product of my astrology. And I might say that it was my karmic path to be born as a double Aquarius because I had a, had some karma having nothing to do with, you know, my, the, the family and the trauma that I experienced and the socioeconomic background I was born into and the religious disposition. But maybe all of my previous existence added up to some kind of formula where I needed to come into this place at this time with the stars in a certain constellation born to these parents in this community so that I could, so that I could take this predisposition that I have um, and learn in a way um, through my circumstances, right. And grow in this particular way. So, so I think it's hard to say what makes some people have that more than others. And, 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 and one thing might be true, uh, it might in one person's case be more because they had an incredibly compelling, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm, not, I'm thinking of this woman I know who's basically raising her child as a single mother. The child has a father, but it's, she has 100% custody. Mm-hmm. She's an incredibly um, sparkly musician who was born into a Mormon family with a lot of religious constraints and mm-hmm. broke free from it and moved to England and became a, a singer songwriter did not take a traditional path and and it's funny because her daughter's name is darwin because she married a man that was really uh totally atheist and she was kind of a fallen mormon so it was a little bit of a you know yeah uh, sticking it to her family yeah yeah there's such a spirituality to this woman 
Mm-hmm. And I know, and I see, I follow them on Facebook and um, I'm just speaking fondly. So there's no reason I shouldn't mention her name, but um, her name is Eliza Wren. And, um, and there's such, um, and she, I mean, she's a musician and she also does some kind of like trampoline fitness stuff and like every video. Oh, cool. Right. Like, so I see so much actual spiritual love. It's not religious. Right. But it's, um, such a love for life and such a deep experience of it and such a creative experience of it. So uh-huh. I know this child being raised by this mother automatically is going to be one of those people, right? Yeah. The people we're talking about. Yeah. So in that case, you could say she has this incredible parent who's so full of life and, and is, you know, um, and in somebody else's case, somebody might have totally, you know, I, I, I don't think my openness is, and hopefully I can sustain it. I'm not assuming that I'm going to be uh, as sparkly as my great uncle when I'm 99 years old, but I hope I'm one of those people and I hope I can sustain it. And I don't think much as I love them dearly that my parents had that much to do with it. You know what I mean? Like in yeah. my case, that's not really true. So it's sort of a long answer to say that I think different things um, influence different people, but what, what is like, uh, like a counter question that's more compelling to me is how can we, is there a universal way that everyone has access to, to despite uh, what their limitations or their um, privileges of their background might be to develop that thing, right? Mm-hmm. So that it's not just the lucky ones that had an amazing parent who was a trampoline artist, singer, songwriter, or somebody right. who had an astrological disposition or learned from a particular trauma. What, and, and this is, I'm really invested in this in my life. Um, because I believe that that thing is accessible to all of us. Not that I we agree. Have, and some people are going to have to work for it more and some people have to peel off more crap, but I do think it's accessible. So, so I don't know what causes it for everyone. I, and I think anything with it that we just inherit in any way is, a, is grace or a blessing, but I'm interested in how can we acquire it? How can we build it? And share it and help other people experience it. I mean, this is part of what I'm doing. This is part of what you're doing, you know, helping, helping raise people's consciousness so that they become more aware of other possibilities for their lives. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, people have all these different words they put on it and almost all of the words are stinky in some way. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) uh, like Like consciousness. (laughs) Well, like, yeah, someone's really enlightened or someone, you know, it's like judgmental, right. Someone's enlightened. Someone's woke. Someone's, uh, you know, an old soul. You know, how do you know that that's what an old soul is like? You know, maybe, maybe they're a new soul and they just have a real, you know, like, I don't want to put any gesture on it. I try not to, I try not to be too condemning of the language, but I also try not to rely on it because it's like, it's like sometimes it's, you know, it's like trying to put words on things that don't really have words, but whatever, you know, whatever, whatever works, whatever is like, whatever word is handy, whatever is, is nearby that, that kind of, um, let's just call it the sparkle, the sparkly eyes, right. That there, there's an experience of life and, you know, you know, I do like, you know, I don't want to condemn all because then we end up not being able to talk about anything like to say <laughs> it's an awakening of sort, you know, I feel free to con- contradict myself in the space of one minute. But um, yeah, I, I, I do think that, that uh, there's something it's like a, it's like an experiencing of the magic of, of the world. Yeah. You know? It's a way it's the opposite of what people get to who become suicidal or just uh, you know, yeah. depressed. Over, um, and that, you know, and that, that's a, that's an even heavier question. How can, can those people be helped out of that? Like, it's one thing to take everyone who's just on this desensitized, polarized, overstimulated playing field that we're on, uh, where we need a Starbucks to feel excited or to be stoned, to be, you know, in the present, but talk about the people that are not even on that level, but that are down in a hole trying to just get to this level that we're on, you know, Mm -hmm. those you know, those people are really um, more in need of this kind of uh, magic finding. So, well, and and I I think, and you can speak about this, but I think a lot of it has to do with your 
your creativity and your inspiration and and listening to your intuition and listening to you know using your emotional system like all of these are signals to guide you so while you were talking about words and i was thinking says the songwriter Mm -hmm. yeah right so how has how has all of that impacted how you show up in life and how you see life and how you, you know, express all of these ideas and not condemning words or, you know. Um, I'm going to make sure that I'm, I'm, I'm fielding your question the right way, but I also want to kind of uh, pivot off something that you just said. And I think those things are, I think my answer is connected to what you just said, yeah. uh, at least in part. And that is um, because you said, Quite clearly, you said, well, I think part of it has to do with learning to tap into your intuition, right? Aspects and, and what you're actually speaking to, if I were to um, put them in a category, is aspects of the human being that are, uh, are not normally nurtured, right? right? Traditional yep. child raising in our education systems and certainly not promoted for the most part in the dominance hierarchies in which yep. most professions and most government and most organizations happen. Yes. Yes. We have, and this might sound like I'm just trying to pull the conversation into it, but I, I think it's naturally going there. But, but um, those, that sort of hierarchical, thought-centered, intellectual, rational, quantizing a mentality that we're kind of, all of us raised into, particularly men, um, has become so culturally dominant and yet it is manifest itself in, in, in such a, in a kind of an impoverished aspect of our culture and our relationships. And so I want to name it, which is you're talking about nurturing qualities that have been for one reason or another, traditionally considered feminine, you know, right. the intuition, sensitivity, um, uh, community orientation, Right, what we talked about originally, this idea of the greater good and mm-hmm. a consciousness of what's good for the group. Um, these are things that, um, and, and in a way, it's men are men have uh, had more power culturally. You know, I mean, the reason people were use words like patriarchy and male privilege is because they re- reflect certain realities. Certainly, in the last several centuries, um, right? I mean, I can't speak to whether or not power imbalances and different roles made sense 5,000 years ago. Maybe they did, but certainly the last several hundred years in Western culture has been about recognizing whatever the system was before, it ain't working anymore. And women and men are not equal. It's been a struggle. And in a way, um, women have had out of necessity to develop these sort of very, uh, what was traditionally considered masculine attributes, like assertiveness and competitiveness and, you know, directness and, all of the stuff that men are raised to be women have had to, in order to assert, just adapt. Right, yeah. Just to adapt, to, to, to fight for the right to vote for the fight for the right of land ownership, to be able to, uh, to, to work or stand side by side in, in fields that are dominated by men and systems that were created by men. Women have had to do that. So in a way in the great evolution of us all integrating all the aspects that are masculine and feminine, women have a bit of a leg up and it's because they've had to. And so men, I think the way I describe part of the reason I got into uh, trying to contribute in some way to the so-called men's movement or to do work that in some ways focused on men's issues is um, men have, are, we're now seeing are hitting different walls. We don't have the concrete wall of like, we don't have the right to vote and women are earning more. Right. And getting beat up and women are causing all the violence. Like, but what men are coming up against is, um, first of all, their own fallibility is finally being called out. Like the Me Too movement was like this massive beginning of a reckoning, right? It was just the tip of the tip of the iceberg. And there were what over 200 prominent men that were identified as just being behaving really badly yeah. and if you understand if you think about what that means for the rest of society and how many what the the hundreds of thousands of thousands men, yeah right and so so it's not and i'm not saying this from a self-hating or a man-hating point of view but that's like our cultural wall that we're hitting is happening in that realm and also in the realm that we're there's a lot of men that are feeling empty because um 
we're living in a world where it's not, it's not, um, it's no longer functional to just be a stoic guy who just buckles down and right. has no functional self-expression. We're living in a world where we need the tools of, that you were talking about, of using our intuition, being sensitive, caring about others, learning to communicate, being creative. And so as a father of a son, my number one job is to stop classifying, oh, I'm going to raise him as a boy. I'm because ch- I, I think all of those attributes are important for men and women. Like, it's yes, all, course, they're all human qualities. Yeah. So, so I don't want to blab on about that too much. So I think you really hit it on the head. And in a way, what you said was you identified the, um, the vacuum of the divine feminine that now needs to find expression in our society, even maybe to the point where we stop calling it the divine feminine, we call it the divine sensitive or the softness or whatever it is. Like, I don't know if it's, I have a question that I've been holding in some of my work and and I'm not really sure whether it's more useful to get um, everyone comfortable with the fact that men and women and people of any gender identification all uh, at their most healthy, incorporate things that are considered feminine and masculine. Yes. And get comfortable with it, particularly men, because women, like I said, they're more, right. women are more comfortable like, oh, this is my masculine side. Men are not comfortable, right? Uh, so either men need to get comfortable with like the feminine being part of who they are and, and an important part. And if it's missing, you're actually out of balance. Or we need to stop talking about these things being feminine and masculine and stop saying that assertiveness is masculine and that sensitivity is feminine. Right. There's, there's, you know, and I don't know what the answer is. And so I'm kind of trying to do both. Well, I think, I think, I think part of it is the whole languaging around it and the, and the, and the valuation of it, you know? So if they were, if those qualities were equally valued, then perhaps you would never have to name them. Because they're not equally valued, then generally the less valued ones are feminine (laughs) and the more valued ones are masculine. Yeah, absolutely. I would say equally valued and universally valued, right? Because some people do value those things for girls. Like it's one, you you need, it's good for you to be sensitive and caring because you're a provider and a mother. You're a good girl. Yeah. You're a good girl. You're a loving wife. You're you're a sensitive mama, and it's good for you to be sensitive because I'm just a dad, and I'm going to read my paper and smoke my pipe and smack the kid if he gets some, you know, right? Nuh-uh, right. So so in a way, it's because, not enough because the- women have been because women have been valued for who they are versus men have been valued for what they do. Yeah. So there's a, a, an agency versus a sense of just you know serving being. <laughs> yeah. And I do think, I mean, on the flip side of it, there is a real, um, there's a, there's a dance happening and Mm -hmm. it's important to not become polarized about it. Right. Because there's a part of us that can just say, you know, pardon my French, but like, I'll just say screw men, you know, like men. You can say fuck them. <laughs> All right, okay. We didn't have a conversation about life. Like, part, I can understand the philosophy of like fuck men, you know, like, because if so, you just look at the stats and how many women do I know that have been date raped by somebody, if not actually yeah. who yeah. lost a job or lost a promotion. I mean, I, I one have, in three, it's either between one and three women or one in four women. And men have been like one in five or one in seven. Right. Right. And, um, and I had a conversation yesterday about uh, with other women who were in those situations where even when they brought it up, they weren't believed. Right. They were like, oh, you're, you're full of it. You don't know what happened. It was, a, you know, in your imagination. So, we, so they're marginalized and minimized and, and, you know, ignored. Right. And when you say one in five men, let's keep in mind that most of the perpetrators are still are men, men in those. Yeah. Right. It's yep. very, very small number of men that were, I mean, there are men that have been abused by women, but like the numbers are, are like this, you know? Yes. Yeah. So, um, but I do think, so I understand, I understand the desire to vilify, or I understand that moment in me too, where a lot of women were like, it's not your time to talk, just shut up and listen. I get it. Mm-hmm. I don't think that that's actually where the solution is at, like where men no. are like, or, and also like it's the teach this t-shirt, the future is female. 
Um, I don't like that. I, I, don't, I don't, I don't, I don't like, I don't like fuck the patriarchy either. I mean, I, yeah. you know, it's not, it's not, um, it, yeah, you're, you're making one right and the other wrong. It's no, it's, 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 it's talking about how do we come together and resolve this for all of us so that we all feel whole and valued and worthy. Exactly. It reminds me a lot of, um, something called, uh, I guess it's called restorative justice versus retributive justice. Um, something I came uh, across, sorry for the noise, there's a truck going by. In the course of studying nonviolent communication, where there's a real, to let this pass, um, <laughs> it's part of the ambience of being in the beautiful outdoors of LA. So, so there's this aspect of nonviolent communication, which identifies punishment and reward as problematic. And um, like most people don't think reward is a problematic thing, but it's like the question often is if there's a behavior that's deemed to be undesirable, do you want the person, whether it's a child or a person you're in relationship with, do you want them to change the behavior because they're either, they're facing punishment if they don't, or they're going to be rewarded if they do like reward doesn't seem as bad. Like, Oh, I'll give you a cookie. If you like clean up your room, doesn't seem as bad as I will hit you if you don't clean up your room. Right. But it's still a system where the person is adjusting their behavior because they're, they're, there's going to be a reaction that's either of benefit or of detriment to them versus if you can ex- convey to them why the change in behavior is beneficial to everyone, then they do it out of love. Like, oh, I clean up my room because it does feel good to come into a clean room. And I can see how mommy and daddy like that. And I like going to to rediscover my toys, you know? So, so that's, so restorative justice is a way of, of turning away from the punitive system to a system that just brings things into equality. Like it's the question isn't like, how do I punish this person for doing wrong, but how to, or reward this person for having been done wrong to, but like, how do I just heal the situation? And, Mm -hmm. and uh, the reality of it is very moving. A friend of mine was working in uh, Somalia and uh, no, it wasn't Somalia. It was R- Rwanda, where that horrible um, uh, genocide, genocide happened. In the Tutsis, awesome. right? And there's a yeah, whole awful. group of people who were just murdered and slaughtered by another group of people. And yet these people shared a country and had to live together afterwards. Mm-hmm. And so there was so much, um, so much murder and so much, so many cases to be prosecuted that just because they couldn't handle it with their legal system, there was an alternative justice system that was offered in townships and communities where the person who was accused who had been a murderer could actually choose to go before the tribunal of the township and, and in among their community members and the people whose actions they affected, like come up with a, a solution. And so what like happened, community service or yeah, like community service, but get this. And this is a documentary. It was like a mind-blowing documentary. There were situations where, for example, a man who had murdered a woman's two children ended up working as basically a servant for that woman, basically Mm -hmm. for the rest of her life, you know, and he accepted it and she accepted it. And so five years later, something has happened where in a strange way, there's a kind of friendship or almost love between a woman and the man who murdered her children. Now, if that's not like, I can barely talk about it. You know, it's, it's, I can't fathom it. I mean, I can't fathom being friends with someone who murdered my kid, but it's just that to know that passion and forgiveness. Yeah. It's like something that goes beyond our normal ability to deal with life, right? Yeah. Whatever this lower self is, can't get it, but our yeah. cosmic self has this capacity. And just to see that, and to believe that that can happen, that is, that's huge, you know? And so uh, I think that in a way ties into what we're, what we're talking about here, you know, to, to operate from a point of view that is not, everything isn't so quantified, you know? And, and if you take it out of a realm where, you know, you have to prove this before we believe in homeopathy or this person has to do this because, you know, there's a, there's a way of, and, and it's like the lunar you know, it's called the lunar mode. And, uh, and, and, it's, and, it's, and I believe that our evolution forward is one in which 
I'm not, I'm not saying that men and women are going to become these sort of androgynous. Everyone's always so afraid of like, I'm going to lose something. You know, the conservative mindset is I'm going to lose something. In this Guess country. what? You'll still have your penis. I'll still have my vulva and vagina. Yeah. And you, you feel like wearing a dress and having long hair. And I still want to wear a blue shirt and shave my head, you know, and yet, you know, like we, whatever the trapping, it's almost like I look at it in terms of cultural intermingling. Like what a beautiful thing the United States is. What a beautiful place Brooklyn is where you can go, right, and go to some like an Orthodox Jewish restaurant and go have Italian food and then go eat some like, you know, Middle Eastern. And and, right. and all of these people are like on the street corner with a band and playing together. And, and it's like right. nobody lost anything. The Chinese culture didn't lose by moving to the United States and learning to speak English and like, you know, you know, use, offering forks in their restaurant. It didn't kill their culture. It, something got shared and then and their cuisine, you know, spawned a whole new thing where the Jewish guy who loved Chinese food because it was the only restaurant open on Christmas opened the restaurant and it's like Jewish tradition with some Chinese stuff mixed in. Like that's that's evolution, right? It's this yeah. mingling where we're not afraid of having to hold on to at all costs the way the things were because I was comfortable with them. But like, it's let's the fear. Have, yeah, it's fear of like losing, but like so much more is going to be born. And the future I see, look, it's already happening. It's not happening because you and I are saying it. It's like the, how people are identifying their gender and their sexual preferences and their new forms of relationships. It's changing and it's changing because it's, it's working for people for it to change. So instead of trying to wish for this Archie Bunker world where nothing changes and girls are girls and men were men, you know. We're actually growing in beautiful ways. We don't have to worry that we're just all going to become these weird androids and there's not, there's not going to be Italian food and there's not going to be women. And there's, you know, like there's all this, if we just dispel this fear, dudes, you know, like you don't have to be gay to be in touch with your feminine side, but you're probably a little gay anyway and get comfortable with it, you know? Like, don't be so... <laughs> that's what my kids say. They're like, mom, everybody's like 20% gay. Right, so, but that's great. Right? Because how old are your kids? 22, 19, and 17. So they're like, they're, that's, a, that's a, a generation that you can just see there's generational growth. Like the mm -hmm. fact that a bunch of 20 year olds, because when I was 20, people didn't think that. Mm -hmm. I think I thought that. But like a lot of people, to toot my own horn, but like, mo like and it's going to keep changing and keep evolving, you know? And the, just the fact that you see that younger people are not as rigidly attached to everything that we thought were norms or that you know, our, our parents thought were norms. That gives me hope. Mm -hmm. I love that. That's evidence of fast evolution. Yeah. And there's still a lot of work to do. I mean, because I, you know, because even in my kids' generation, I mean, my, my 19 year old is in college and he's take, he, he took an eight week marriage, marriage and family course or something, you know, some, some sort of family relationship course. And uh, I got divorced Two years ago, after 27 years of marriage, we had a very conflictual uh, relationship, a lot of arguing, a lot of fighting, a lot of, uh, you know, unrest and discord and struggle and stress. And I decided I didn't want that, you know, um, that my kids were all experiencing physical and emotional, you know, issues because of all the stress in the house. And so I chose to get divorced. And so my 19-year-old, he went to this class and he said, he said, mom, actually, we weren't as bad as a lot of other people were, you know, so there are still so many things that people are not um, acknowledging, you know, this, like this emotional language, this, this sense of becoming aware of what's going on inside of you and acknowledging these differences and how we we need to embrace the allness of who we are, the wholeness of who we are. Um, I, I feel like these are, these conversations have really only been more normalized in the last, what, decade, two decades, maybe. Uh, so there's still so much work and, um, awareness that that we need to bring to the forefront i mean we need to we don't need to do anything but no, no, I, in order I, for I'm, the I'm evolution with need to i think that's a that's a real it's certainly in, uh, it's the need comes if it's an if we want to harmony peace and harmony we want, we want to move evolution along 
at a pace that we can actually still save humanity and the planet. We yeah. do kind of need an accelerated growth. And I agree with you. Uh, these things are, I mean, as I pointed out, there's a nice to see a generational difference, but it's not universal. I'm sure there's plenty of 20 year old kids that uh, would would balk at the notion that like everyone's 20% gay or whatever you're. Well, you know, when, yeah, I mean, this, my kids grew up in the city of Chicago right? with all, right. different, you know, as opposed right. to some Chicago. rural place. Yeah. Or, and those you know, other places. Not to condemn those people. I, I've been to the South. I've been to, you know, the Bible Belt. And there are there are people that are just as wonderful. But like with the cultural limitations um, that happen in places like that, there are there are some uh, ideas and concepts that take a little longer to take hold. And so, so it's not just uh, time-wise, but it's also regionally, you know, we can have the most progressive conversations. If somebody listens to like 20 such conversations that were taking place, you know, in the kind of communities that we operate in, people think, Oh, we're about to save the world. But like, there's a lot of other conversations that are happening that are very different. And uh, a lot of race relation, race relations, cultural relations, religious, you know, Issues. There's misogyny yeah. and uh, homophobia and racism and anti-Semitism and um, you know there's a that's, lot of dark stuff. That's yeah, all. We, the, that's all the fear and separation. Yeah, yeah, and yet we can't. I guess what I was saying. I'm trying to tie a theme together here. What I was saying about um, um, what the reason I brought up restorative justice, I don't think I ever really brought that back around um, in reference to what you were talking about, but this is another opportunity to do so. It's that in the polarization, we can't just other the things that we that are not in harmony. We can't just like basically send them to the moon and be like, you do your unhealthy toxic shit there. Right. Right. <laughs> right? The allness, I like that word you, you coined, the allness of things demands that we now pick up in the rubble in the post Trump, whatever we're in now, where there's still these highly polarized left versus right and woke versus MAGA. Um, And with the other point of the triangle being the sort of QAnon, like, you know, that every point has a healthy center and a toxic extreme, I would say, you know, because there's something healthy in conservatism. I wouldn't say that I've, I tend to be a person who's identified as a liberal, progressive, you know, tree hugging, whatever. But um, I, I understand when I speak to a, a, a sane, non-extreme, non-polarized conservative person, I get what they're saying. I get the value um, because progress without any, uh, you need a tether of like the knowledge that exists and the, and, and the hard wrought wisdom that humans have. There's like something that's always worth the kernel of it worth being held onto to be, to be replanted and become a new plant. You can't just throw out the seeds that have come from the trees in the past. So conservatism right. has um, a value and progressivism and liberalism have values because if you're just sticking with what worked in the past, you, you won't get growing. it. Yeah. Oh, and, and also the sort of, the sort of a conspiratorial realm you know that i have friends that operate in that realm and it, there's like some things that i that resonate with me but like the, the toxic extreme is the QAnon. but even in that realm which i would identify as rate rising above the left right spectrum and questioning all uh political powers and like the recognition that like the democratic and the republican party are corrupt in various ways yes and there's value to seeing that there are people behind the scenes that are not always identified that are pulling certain strings like there's health in all of those three points, as long as they're not going to the extreme of believing that uh, Tom Hanks is running a sex child trafficking ring through a pizzeria with mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton and eating babies. And on the other hand, that like, or our white people's rights are being taken away and all the immigrants are invading our country and the gays and, and black people are just, you know, are, are looting our stores or the woke position of, you know, basically anybody who's not uh, doesn't use the exact right terminology at all times is a heathen, backwards idiot, and an un- and a deplorable who should just be sh- you know basically shut down when they're trying to speak at my college, and I'm going to scream at them through a megaphone because I know more than they do. Right? That the toxic extremes are always they don't go anywhere healthy, but it's like somewhere in the center of the triangle, there's this sort of the truth floats, and so if we are invested in the pod. Like, I think this is where you're coming from and what attracted me to having this conversation with you is there are certain people that are focused on what is the healthy way forward, right? What's the restoration? Yeah. 
not how can I make them wrong? And like they now have to see that we're right because we run the election. Now, now they need to know what idiots they were for voting for Trump. That's not nobody's going to go forward that way. Right. right. It's more like I have to understand that what led those people to support Trump, what what is missing in the country and how am I feeding the gap in our culture, in our world? Like what what belief systems of mine have like contributed to the overall ailment of the system? Right. If we come from that point of view. We're just going to get a lot further than if just we're making everybody wrong, whether I'm a MAGA misogynist or a woke political corrector, right? It's just never, or a QAnon who knows everything that nobody else knows because I, I see past all the veils, right? It's never works. So I, I, I'm attracted to people who are invested in um, mentalities and approaches and visions that are less, that are just all about like, how can we heal this? How can we bring it together? How can we transform it right and i feel like sort of that's what we're doing yes yes i mean this is this is all my work and i believe that this is all your work is is getting rid of all of these barriers that block us from experiencing the allness you know it's that because i think all of those problems are because of this fear and separation and judgment and you know right wrong good bad you me us them and you know we we are all a part of humanity humanity you know all of us are human beings we all carry these energies with us we all experience the same emotions you know, based on whatever, you know, experiences you've been through. I mean, people bleed red. <laughs> Their right. blood is red. That Everybody old, cries. Like that old Sting song, if the Russians love their children too, yeah. right? Which is obvious. The Russians obviously do love their children, you know? Yeah. So, and we all love our children. And um, yeah, that's, that's it. And I think what's helpful, getting a little more esoteric about it, because you said, yeah, it's the fear, the separation. It's helpful to understand that that these are forces that play upon us and right. that everyone on some level is subject to. We are, it's a temptation in a way. If I think of like the temptations of the quote devil or whatever, the dark forces in the world play upon our fears and our doubts and our hatred. And they try to stimulate, I'm not, I'm not assigning any particular they to the they, but like whatever the forces in the world are that are, that are um, adversarial to human evolution and the growth of love and kindness and freedom, they access our psyches through fear and, and doubt and hatred. And so we have to be aware when we're being pulled into those things. And if I'm in a place of fear, this is where a sort of a spiritual training comes in because you, you can become more aware of when you're, when you're actually in fear or in doubt or in hatred, animosity, any, there's a certain flavor that these feelings have. And if we are ever, if we learn to recognize what those flavors are, then, then at least there's a, an alert system that can happen where it's like, oh, I'm in the hate mode because I read an article about some, you know, hypocritical politician or some horrible person that did some horrible thing. And I want, and I want them to punish them because it's so horrible, whatever they did or whatever really think or what they said or what they it's so you know someone's trying to undo roll be weight whatever it is it's ticking me off if i start feeling the flavor of that um i know that it's i'm in a dangerous place because there is a way to channel the energy of um of outrage or um uh like a real spiritual indignation uh, into a place that's not self-righteous and combative, but that is uh, a desire to transform and heal. You know, you can take those things, but if we're not aware of them and we don't know when we're in them, this is a lot of relationship work comes down to this. Yes. We patterns just in our relationships. We're like couples will for an extended period of time be in, in like a mild version of the hatred. You know what I mean? And, and, and so it's like everything that their partner does is like, oh, there's a thing they did, you know? And it's like, because they don't care. And it's this narrative that builds and builds and builds. Right. And you have, you entered a relationship out of love and yet somehow the temptation of the hate sep- seeped in when you start realizing that your idealized vision of this person, right, isn't exactly who they are. And, and that, can, that can be, a, these are really undermining factors. And I think 
I guess the reason I'm saying that is that there are ways to consciously um, counteract these forces. Um, by you counteract hatred by building your capacity for love. You counteract um, fear by building your capacity for hope, and you counteract doubt by building your capacity for faith and a belief that things will work out. You know what I mean? It's the same in relationship with doubt. Like someone's like doubts the love of their partner, doubts the fidelity of their partner, doubts themselves. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's so insidious. It's like it's sort of good to identify them as. Um, we're in this swirling field of energies, you know, and, uh, there's some, and I don't, I'm really don't subscribe to the whole, the, the secret and, and this, this doctrine of like, I'm just going to manifest my reality. But if there's a, if there's a truth to that, it is, um, it's not that I'm going to manifest a Mercedes if I just align myself with a vibration, but I do think there's something true about if I cultivate the vibration of love in my heart and I cultivate real positivity, not spiritual bypass positivity, but right. real positivity, the, the ability to, the habit of seeing, trying to look for something positive, even the, and when, when unwanted things happen, then those things become the capacities that not only make it be easier for me to navigate through life and to have healthier relationships, to renew my loving relationship disposition to my partner or my child, but also to ward off these thwarting forces of doubt and fear and hate that become so insidious that even a person who feels intellectually that they're self-righteous can be overcome with hate. And so people form groups where they're uniting in hate, right? Like you could be like, Trump is so bad. I'm going to form a group that's like, right. you hate Trump, right? right? And is that a good thing? I, I don't think so. No, no. And so how do you, how do you manage this in partnerships? Because this, this, this was the conflict that I had, you know, that I'm trying to manage my own sense of love and peace and harmony <laughs> and um, just kept getting pushback because I felt like they were not doing the same, you know, right. so there's this imbalance in, um, in loving kindness energy and not. <laughs> yeah, and, and the part about that is that can, that can stoke your own resentment, right? And then there's a part of you that justifiably feels resentful. This happens to a lot of couples because one person, let's say one person um, starts to identify before the other person that there's um, an imbalance or there's toxicity or there's animosity, there's resentment, there's something that's, that needs to be healed. And so they say, Okay, I'm going to do the work. I, I want. I care about this person. I care about. The, they're not at a level of contempt yet for another person, um, but there's there's kind of an alarm, and they're alarmed at their own feelings toward the other person. They're alarmed at what they're perceiving is coming towards them, and they say, I, "Let's go to a therapist. I want to do this. I'm going to work on not being so reactive." And blah blah blah. And they even really try. But the problem number one is when both people aren't invested to the same degree. Right then. You know, one person can shift to some degree, I think, um, and sometimes be kind of healing. But there's, you, you can't drag the entire, one person can't usually transform or drag the whole relationship. And so mm -hmm. what can happen to the person who's doing the work is uh, they lose hope. They become resentful, right? Because it's like, after a while, you've really put in work into a relationship. I still perceive this in myself. You know, I had a conversation with a family member who I, in my estimation, has not done the kind of amount of transformational work I've done, nor work in the relationship and in the family to, to maintain healthy communication. Mm -hmm. And so this person was like, well, we should see a therapist together. Like, I'm like, okay, great. That's, first of all, that's my wheelhouse. Right. But it's like interesting that like you never in all of your trauma and all of your life and stuff you've dealt with, it's never occurred to you to get therapy for yourself. For yourself. Right. To do any healing yeah. work. Yeah. I could feel in myself a little bit of that resentment of like, you know, maybe you should go do some work first and then we'll go to, or maybe how about we go to one together and you do your own therapy? Cause the therapist <laughs> is going to tell you that I know right. that I can like, I can do therapy, but so, so there is like, that lives in every, in everyone. And it's like, it's just a reality. So it's really, really hard to, to, to a do the work alone and then to 
to not feel met in that and then not build resentment from it. Like it's really like the only person I think that has to carry that is a parent, like a parent relationship. And I know this, I only have a two-year-old, but I know that no matter what my child does and like what kind of a jerk they become if they're when he's a teenager, whatever happens. And he will. And he will, by the way. (laughs) I'm going to have to cultivate, like I am the parent and I brought him into the world. We brought him into the world. I have to love him. I have to support him. And I have to have an unending well of forgiveness and compassion. And that is my role. And I'm born to do it. And he was born into that. But that's, that's kind of a unique love. And if we could actually bring the parental unconditional care that you have for a child into a partnership. Yes. um, But that is a, that's a lot to ask of any, no matter like a a self-developed human being. Right. And very often. Yeah. Side. At some point, like there's a, you know, there's a, there's a point of kind of resignation that people get to. It's like, they just realize this person I've now experienced this person's limitations. He or the she or they don't want, or they don't have the capacity to put in what I'm putting in or to even put in enough to make this work. And I have to choose whether I'm going to abide that, that limitation and live within the limitations that therefore the relationship has, or I'm going to cut myself loose. Yeah. I mean, the the last time that we went to the therapist's office and we had been to her two other times for long periods of time. And she said, Dawn, this is the first time I've seen you without hope. You've lost hope. And I said, yep, you're exactly right. Yeah. And then I made the choice. Like, I just can't do it anymore. Right. But then I do believe this is the sort of the eternal optimist in me that that was like that was the good choice. It's like, there's so much pain that comes with ending a long-term relationship, a yeah. marriage. I haven't had any 27 year relationships, but I've had some long ones. Um, and it's always our cultural want, our culture wants us to tell us that the failure, um, but it may just be that, uh, and I'm not, again, I'm not putting a spiritual bypass on it because I'm not minimizing the pain of that. Um, but I'm sure there's a part of you because you made the choice and because you're living with this choice that in, at the end of the day, your world now going forward um, without the albatross of the relationship as it was, at least you probably right. still have some kind of relationship right. is going, is, is going to be a better life and a freer life. And in some way, a more fulfilling life for you than it would have been to stay in that battle. Definitely. Uh, and and my work i mean had you know would i have ever started this podcast maybe not you know would i want to coach women who have experienced what i have experienced maybe not you know so it's 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 taking these taking these painful experiences and transmuting them in myself and using them as a way to um to help serve humanity, <laughs> you know, to that's, help that's other people. Powerful. That is like, let me just take a moment to acknowledge that. Cause I was just speaking to, you know, it, I, I, I'm sort of meant to include that in what's beautiful, what's opening up for you. But like, it's so much bigger than just what's, what's feeling good for you. It's like your purpose, your mission yeah. has been amplified. Right. There's a friend of mine, a wonderful friend of mine named Angela Shelton, who, did a uh, made a film about um, uh, sexual child abuse. She was a victim of sexual child abuse, and she mm-hmm. uh, she did a, a, a movie called Searching for Angela Shelton, where she actually just in order to get a sense of how many women had been abused in some way or another, she just sought out women that had her exact same name. There were like a certain number of Angela Sheltons in the really? country. Wow! She sought out and met them. And it was like an astonishing number of them had suffered in some way wow. as just, a, just this, the smallest cross section of right women. And so, but uh, the reason I'm mentioning her is that she, because she, she became uh, very empowering in transforming her pain of her own abuse and confronting it and healing. Uh, so she became a public speaker and has worked with a lot of people wow. and she has this beautiful metaphor, um, which it's like, talk about the oxygen metaphor. It's like, she says, you take the sword that you've been stabbed with, right? And if you can manage to pull it out, that becomes your, your power and your gift, right? Wow. 
and the sword is up here now, you know, and that, and I see that in her and I see that, in wow. somebody, right. That's what wow. you've done. That's what you've done with your wow. past marriage, right? Thank you for that. That is really powerful. Isn't it? Because I, I would say many times, like, I feel like I've been stabbed in the heart over and over and over. And where's that, where's that knife now? Where's that sword, you know? Yeah. And that's, and because it's like, you don't know, I don't know who's watching this or who, you know, but like if just one person has, has benefited from your work, you've made the world a better place through your pain and your process and your, and your grappling with your pain and you're facing it and not just burying yourself in it or accepting it or saying, okay, I guess this is my lot in life. But like, right. but like you're hacking through the jungle and digging through the mud of your own stuff and with the intention of healing and transcending and like nobody comes out of it unscathed, right? Like we have yeah. the scar still, like there's a big scar there, but there's right. not a hope anymore, right? Right. Subscribe to the Wake Up to Real Love podcast. Leave five-star reviews. And of course, share with your friends. You can find Dawn on various social media platforms at Dawn Richard or at The Awakening with Dawn.